0: trolls yeah these are the same people zoom bombing these yeah, are the same people true. we just don't need yeah in these uh it's it's tough enough doing a zoom meeting or doing you know yeah. doing anything like that and y'all are up in here putting in those messages like yeah exactly just, we just don't need that energy you <laughs> <laughs> just don't need that energy this is van color We're at
1: the west coast <laughs>
2: My name is Moamir and today on This is Van Color, I'm joined by a video journalist who has worked all over this great country of ours. She got her start at CFMT, which you know as Omni, before she moved on to be a reporter, anchor, and talk show host for Rogers Peel TV. She's also worked as a news writer for the Weather Network. She spent some time at the CBC working as a multi-platform reporter and anchor in St. John's, Calgary, and Edmonton. She also spent six years as an editor and freelance writer for Planet Africa Magazine, a quarterly publication based in Toronto. You will find her both in front and behind the camera at Global BC. She is also the executive director at the Canadian Association of Black Journalists. She is Nadia Stewart. Nadia. How are you?
0: I'm good, but actually, there's actually one quick thing in there.
2: Did I screw it up?
0: Yeah, I'm not behind the camera anymore. You're not? No. Oh. Thank God.
2: <laughs> How am I supposed to know that you're not behind the camera? I mean, you're behind the camera. <laughs>
0: I know. Uh, so, so that was um, a shift, I think, maybe in 2016, 2015. Okay. Um, I still edit. I edit all of my stories, so everything you see—if my name is on it—I have cut it. Um, That's like kind of behind the camera (laughs) for the most part, but just not shooting anymore. But that's what I was doing at at, uh, CBC. Okay, um, in uh, not in Calgary, in Newfoundland—that's where all of that started. Um, and as you know now, we chatted off mic very briefly. Your favorite place. For CTV in, uh, in Kitchener Waterloo. So yeah. you make my time at Rogers also sound very glamorous.
2: <laughs> I, was, I was digging up what I could find. I apologize for that misspeak. Uh, if you were no longer in front of the camera, then you could call me out on it and be like, hey, hey I haven't been on TV. This is true. So behind the camera, I would not know. Okay. <laughs> It's nice to see you, though. I mean, we've chatted virtually over Zoom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now to be in person, it's one of those things you take for granted. Right? Over the
0: last several months, yeah. you know, I, I've really come to appreciate these face-to-face conversations that that I get to have with people. Even, you know, yesterday, uh went out reporting on the Sunshine Coast. Oh, okay. And just to spend the entire day <laughs> with... A shooter and talking and working and bouncing ideas off one another. I'm like, oh my god, this is great <laughs> <laughs> human interaction. <laughs> oh my gosh, I've missed this so much. The story was just so much better because we were working together. So, so yeah, definitely, you know, one of those things that um, that, that I think we have taken for granted. So, yeah, I yeah, appreciate this.
2: So this year has been very challenging in many ways. And for myself, recognizing that I'm very fortunate and I'm very grateful for everything that I have, I also understand that it's been varying degrees of difficult for everyone. And I've sort of discussed this on the past on the show here, but I feel like I've turned a corner recently on the in the COVID crisis. Like, this year sucks. It might continue to suck, but I'm just weirdly optimistic now. I feel like I'm bouncing back. Maybe it's the sunshine. So I have to ask, crossing the midway point of this year, how are you feeling?
0: Um, You know, this has been this has been a tough year. I refuse to call it a write off or to say that it's (laughs) been terrible or to say, you know, I want to restart on 2020. Mm. I think um, no matter what we go through in terms of challenges, there is always you know, something to to draw on in terms of a silver lining, in terms of hope, uh, in terms of learning and growth. And so, as tough as um, this year has been, I still see uh, so much um, coming out of it. I started the pandemic with the birth of uh, our first niece in oh, my family. My congratulations. Sister. yeah, thank you. I'm finally Auntie Nadia. <laughs> finally. And so, um, you know, the first baby in the family, I was in Toronto, and yeah. I'll never forget flying out to Toronto to 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 see my sister and the baby. And uh, the plane was full, right? <laughs> yeah. Packed plane. And then March twenty, when did I fly back march twenty fourth or twenty fifth flying back. There were people in the air in the airport. In bunny suits, in like hazmat suits. Wow. And like shower caps and ponchos, duct tape, the glove to the poncho. Oh my god. It was next level. And I was like, how did the world change this much in two weeks? <laughs> there was about twelve so people. So fast. so fast. There were like twelve people on the plane. And yeah. that for me was, you know, because two weeks in Toronto didn't leave the apartment we're just there with the baby everything's falling around outside the apartment (laughs) but I am just there with my sister and the baby you know all of us are just nesting and so come out of that and uh and the world has completely changed right yeah yeah it was it was really something
2: well that's also nice that the baby was born pre-covid lockdown yes because I know that's become a thing in terms of going to the hospital and yeah. who can be at the hospital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And who can visit, obviously, yeah. after that as yeah. well. Yeah, so. like, the, you know, she
0: was born at the perfect time. Yeah. March 3rd. And that's so- my
2: birthday. Oh, no. Oh, shit. Oh. This is going to be a great <laughs> podcast. That is an omen. This is happening. I love it.
0: <laughs> there you go. You share something with my niece. Oh, that's wonderful. So we're so excited. I've already got a nickname for her. I call her BB.
1: BB? Uh, yeah,
0: you know, her, um, my brother-in-law is Italian.
1: Okay, cool. And
0: uh, when they saw the baby, uh, somebody said, oh, she looks like a little doll, like a little Bambolina, which ah. is Italian for for doll. And, um, and so I'm like, I love Bambolina, but it's too long. I can't say that every time. So I shortened <laughs> it to Bibi.
2: I love it. She's so sweet. <laughs> I love what you said at the start of that in terms of reflecting on the year, about trying to find silver lining and hope. And I think that's also contributed to my bounce back as well. Like I'm sort of seeing the sunny side of the street as, or trying to. One of the things that gives me hope is that I think amongst Canadians, there has been this inward reflection about our prejudices and our privileges. And we've particularly been looking at things like racism. I haven't seen much in terms of like public policy, particularly on a federal level, but I think that as a culture, we are reflecting on this more so than we did before. You're on the ground. You're talking to all sorts of people every day. Do you get the sense that Canadians are finally looking inward and reflecting upon racism? And I mean all Canadians. I'm not trying to single out white people. I'm just talking about everyone. I
0: do get the sense that some Canadians are doing this. I don't. I don't want to, like you said, you know, make a blanket statement that that this is happening on a broad scale because yeah. I, I do think um, there are still some systemic racism deniers, as <laughs> as we've seen in recent columns. So I, I don't want to suggest, um, you know, that that everybody is doing this. Mm-hmm. But I think we are having um, the kind of conversation that you know, for myself as a black woman. Uh, I've wanted to see happen in this country for a long time, Mm -hmm. you know, but there are experiences that so many of us have grown up with that we brush off. You know, there are things that I've experienced, um, you know, as a young girl and and just reflecting on the way that my mother raised me in light of, you know, the racism that she didn't want my sisters and I to encounter. Mm. So when I reflect on all of that um, and see where we're finally at Yeah, this is, you know, this is finally progress, but I don't want to um, I don't want to get ahead of myself. There's still a long way to go um, in terms of
2: meaningful change. Yeah. It's a start. Yeah. One of the interesting things that you just brought up is this idea of denying systemic racism. I'm starting to see the culture shift and this is just from my vantage point. I could be completely wrong, but I'm starting to see the culture shift where Denying systemic racism is almost akin to denying climate change. We saw Stockwell Day. I mean, he lost all his jobs for denying systemic racism on television. And by the way, he has two government pensions. He's fine. He's 70 years old. Yeah, he's going to be all right. I believe he just got appointed to a new board of a penny stock company as Mm -hmm. well. Like, it's Mm -hmm. not cancel culture, Mm -hmm. right? But I almost feel like outside of maybe Quebec, The denial of systemic racism, at least in urban centers, really puts you on the fringe. We weren't having this conversation before. We weren't treating it as like commonly accepted knowledge. Do you think there has been a shift, at least in urban centers in Canada, in terms of accepting systemic racism as a thing?
0: I, I do think there has been an uprising um, in you know against that uh, that way of thinking like you're definitely not gonna go on Twitter spewing out those thoughts, right? you will <laughs> <laughs> They will run you off the platform. <laughs> Nobody's got any time for that nonsense. yeah um, but yes, I, I do think that there is um, uh, this pushback against um, that sentiment because, there's just too much evidence Mm
1: -hmm. of
0: it now. There always has been, for the record, there always has been. But um, I think the death of George Floyd, no, sorry, the murder of George Floyd Mm -hmm. brought that into focus um, in a very um, profound and painful way. The Mm -hmm. way he was murdered was just... It's so, it was so callous. You know, my husband and I took a long time before we would even watch that video.
2: Hmm. I still haven't seen the full thing. I can't. Like, I've seen stills and I've seen parts of it. And it's... It's too much. It's too much. It's too much. It's a, it would be, I imagine, a long eight minutes to watch, yeah. let alone to have experience experienced it, to have been yeah. there.
0: Yeah. When you see that, how yeah. can you deny systemic racism?
2: <sighs> I have no idea. But it happens and it does happen on Twitter. I had someone ask me today and they said, you know, uh, I've been asking people for proof of systemic racism and all they can point to is the Indian Act. <laughs> and it's like, and I have a bad habit of getting into dumb Twitter back and forths. But with this person, I did refer them to a Twitter thread that MLA Bowen Maude actually posted and she posted about police outcomes, right? Death at the hands of police. And she looked at, Black communities and Indigenous communities, and had some different articles and showed how they were disproportionately affected here in Canada. Right, it's not an American problem, which I think is also something that we suffer from. We look at the death of George Floyd and go, "Oh my God, those Americans! They're so terrible," without recognizing what we have here.
0: What we have here, and you know, part of the reason why, um, in in our household at least, you know, my husband and I just uh, hesitated for a long time to watch the video. Uh, is because it brings up those memories of interactions with Mm -hmm. police. Um, Really with my husband, it, you know, and I didn't realize, you know, that he had had so many bad experiences Hmm. here in Vancouver over the years. And and what he said to me was, you know, babe, they just make you feel like you're less than. Those were his words. They Hmm. make you feel like you're less than. And so, you know, I, I just, I get so frustrated when people, make it seem as though racism is not a Canadian thing. Yeah, You know, like this is not happening here. The police don't do that here. It happens here. The problem is you just don't want to talk about it. People just don't want to talk about it because it's easier if we, and and we have in this country, people have in this country um, just lulled themselves into this, you know this this dream that that this is Canada and we are all nice. No, we don't do that. No, there's no racism here. Um, but you get to talking to um, to people of color and and you know black people, and they'll tell you different stories. Yeah, I remember um, my husband telling me one story of you know that he experienced when he first moved here a, a couple of years afterwards, and he was working um, as a property manager, uh, still does and uh, was down on the, the ground floor. He was maintaining one of the uh, the condo towers. And somebody saw him from uh, somebody up in one of the higher balconies saw him working down below, and they threw banana peels at him. Really? Yeah. So I, I reject huh. those stories about, you know, this doesn't happen in Vancouver, and people are, you know, we, we don't have racism here. I just reject those stories because... Um, yeah, that that was his that was his experience um, coming from, you know, another another country and coming here as as a professional soccer player for crying out loud. Hmm. Um, and after he left sports, got into the trades and and his own starting eventually starting his own company. Yeah. But um, yeah, yeah. That was his experience. And I, I've already told you mine off, off, you know, Mike, we'll talk about it. Well, that's I what guess, I was going to but... get
2: into. We were talking about how you got into your role at the CABJ. And it was an experience in, in St. John's. And I was very shocked to hear it because I just said, oh, you worked in St. John's. I loved it there. I was there for a week, <laughs> which was a very limited experience. <laughs> and you told me that you had a much different experience there. And it sounded like a almost a life altering experience in a way.
0: It was in many ways. You know, to preface this, I I was two and a half, I did spend two and a half years in in St. John's, Newfoundland working for the CBC there. And I'll never forget my time there. I met great people, worked Mm -hmm. with great people, um, and and enjoyed that whole experience. I don't think I would be where I am today in the industry had it not been for those two and a half years Hmm. in St. John's. So it'll always hold a special place in my heart for just for that reason. but there was one morning when I was on my way into the newsroom and there were these two white girls walking um, in front of me. And I was not far from the CBC building, like, you know, maybe just two more minutes and I would have been there. And one of the girls uh, looked back and, at me and she said, oh, look, there's a, and she called me the N-word. And uh, the girl beside her was like, no, no, you can't say that. And she said, I don't care. I call them all. And she said, the N word again. Wow. And I was in shock. No one had ever um, directed that word at me before. Um, I'd never. And so
2: random, like you're not even so in
0: conflict random. with these people. I, I was minding my own business. I was just walking to work. I was yeah. minding my own business. I, you know, just walking by myself to work. Jeez. And um, for much of the day, I just wouldn't talk about it. Yeah. I would not tell my colleagues. There are some of my colleagues who are probably going to hear this story for the first time on your podcast. There's one of my colleagues who I he just I just told him that story for the first time like a week ago. Hmm. Um, it was just so dehumanizing and painful. Yeah, but it was what led me to seek out the Canadian Association of Black Journalists because I thought. I think I'm going to need some support here. Like, I, I didn't expect this. You know, the, the way that my mother raised my sisters and I, and I don't fault any parent for doing this. And mm-hmm. I, I'm sure, you know, there must have been others who did the same was, you know, they try and she tried to make sure that, you know, we were, I guess, good enough. If you, if you will, you know, that our hair was always hmm. straight enough, you know, our extensions were always straight enough, our braids were always neat enough. And, and, you know, we were in French immersion, we spoke perfect English, we looked a certain way, we dressed a certain way. Hmm. For her, I think that was her way of making sure that we just avoided any of the things that, that she didn't want us to experience. Yeah. But in that moment, I realized,
2: it doesn't matter. No, it
0: doesn't matter outside of toronto i am black first and a woman second Hmm. and that was that was the reality that that hit me in that moment and so that yeah that's what led me to seek out the the cabj because i thought i'm gonna need some help like i need just somebody to talk to um just somebody to you know bounce these these feelings off of because i don't i i didn't want this to drive me out of this you know this this great experience you know that i was that i was having
2: what's the intersection between that experience that you had on the street and effectively your work life because the cabj is a professional organization
0: like the intersect like how i uh, like how that experience (laughs) led to where i am today
2: well no I, i i guess so what i'm asking is This experience that you had Mm -hmm. was outside of a work setting, Mm -hmm. right? But you just said that it led you to seek out this organization Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. your profession. Mm -hmm. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. how did you connect that that way?
0: I was also the only black woman there (laughs) (laughs) in the newsroom. And uh, when you're one of the few or the only, uh, you know, you notice it. Uh, there was another journalist of color there at the time, um, but there was there you know there were no other black people uh, in the station, and I mean let's be real, it's St. John's Newfoundland, yeah, and a lot sure. of black people on St. John's Newfoundland, right? And yeah. so <laughs> I thought to myself, I'm going to need some support. Is there another black journalist who's had this experience? You know, where you leave mm. Toronto, you go to a small market to build your career. Um, but this is what you encounter.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, in the end, uh, I I found that the C A B. In the end, I, I actually, first of all, in the end, I did end up finding a community of Black people within St. John's. Okay, and these were people who had uh, moved from other parts of America, even Africa, hmm. to um work in the oil industry at the time. Oil was still good. Sure. And yeah. so, um, it just tr- it turned out that the house that I was living in, there happened to be a family from. The Ivory Coast. Hmm. Who moved in upstairs? Like it was just. It ended up being this <laughs> blessing. They would always come down and bring me. They'd bring me dinner. It. It ended up just being this. Um, this comfort, really. This comfort, um, having them there. Um, I also met a group of students from the university and and folks who worked in other places. Mm-hmm. A girl, uh, uh, an international student from Zimbabwe, ended up becoming my hairdresser. So okay, I, yeah. you know, built a little community for myself there. But that came kind of late in the game. Yeah. Um. So that's why I realized, you know, okay, I w- recognize I'm I'm really going to need, you know, some th- someone or, you know, a, an organization that can see me through. Um, you know, this whole journey in the industry because I knew that St. John's was not going to be the end Mm -hmm. um, of my career. But in reaching out to the CABJ, that's when I discovered that they had, um, you know, lapsed, that that there was a lapse in leadership and Mm -hmm. it was no longer operational. And so it took a couple of years, excuse me, it took a couple of years. um, But in 2016, I went to the conference for the National Association of Black Journalists. Okay, Um, And they're essentially the CABJ in the US, big. Like, they are big. <laughs> sure. <laughs> They've got, like, 2,500 members, something like that. Wow. Maybe 2,500. Their, their, their um, annual convention, which is what I went to attend, can draw up to, like, 3,500 um, Black and Hispanic journalists. Wow. Um, so, just an amazing experience. When you're there, you're, you leave with your soul just revived. You're in a room <laughs> with so many Black creatives and, and journalists. It's amazing. How many people are associated with the CABJ So in the since the relaunch, so we had about when we took over the organization, we being um, the group that um, uh, myself and the former president helped me to assemble to lead this team. Okay, cool. um, So we uh, took over the mailing list with two hundred people on the mailing list, but we knew that there had been a shift Mm -hmm. in the industry in the sense that, you know, there were black people who had started their own platforms. There were freelancers. There Mm. were some still in the industry and we weren't capturing students. So we know that that number is off.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, And so that's a lot of the work that we're doing now um, in terms of figuring out where everybody is Mm -hmm. and, Honestly, every day since we relaunched in 2018, that has been quite the discovery. Sure. Um, and and ever since uh, May, since uh, George Floyd's murder, it has been just in overdrive.
2: Yeah. Honestly. And we'll get into some of the work there, but I am wondering, based on your personal experience, based on the experience of your husband, based on the experience of others that you know. Do you worry that this cultural moment where we are talking about race, even if it's in our urban eco chambers, do you worry that it's a passing moment where <laughs> you know we think about that time of like, oh, remember the the riots and the protests that happened then and but nothing actually substantially changed? Is that a worry for you that it might be a wasted opportunity
0: um I think it's all there's always the possibility um, that that could happen. But I do believe that the voices are quite loud right now um, and ignoring them is not an option. Mm -hmm. So, yes, the I think that the conversation will move from the spotlight. But even if it moves from the spotlight, is it still happening is that conversation still happening? And that's, I, I believe, where the CABJ comes in when we're talking about the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when we're talking about other levels of, of society, whether that's government or policing or education, um, it is up to, to those institutions, you know, those organizations to ensure that the conversation doesn't stop until meaningful change happens. Mm-hmm. And that's meaningful change that you can measure. That's what really we want to see, even within the media industry from the CBJ's perspective.
2: Yeah. I guess media is so interesting because it has this centralized role in our culture, right? It really shines a light on things that we should be looking at. It also has the power to ignore things. So when we talk about whether it's different companies individually or different sectors, like the media is almost central to, to everything, right?
0: It is. You know, the media intersects with with all of them in terms of, um, you know, being I think as an industry it sees itself as a watchdog mm-hmm. right um, especially for journalism. Um, our focus within the CABJ is who's watching the watchdog right <laughs> right Who's holding the watchdog accountable because yeah. that I think is is the problem in in this instance. And, and even if you look you know look at the calls to action that we jointly released with CJOC, Canadian journalists of color, that's why we as our number one call to action is needing to talk about uh, the absence of, d- of diversity data.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um this industry intersects with, you know, with everything, including <laughs> including our daily lives mm-hmm. um, as Canadians. And so it's so important that this industry reflects um you know the the multicultural makeup of this country. Um but it's also um as well doing the inward work mm-hmm. that others are doing.
2: So let's get into something recently that the Canadian Association of Black Journalists did, and that was write an open letter to Douglas Murphy, who is the president and CEO of Chorus Entertainment, which includes Global, which you work for, (laughs) under its umbrella. Can you tell me about the letter first and foremost and how it came about?
0: So the CABJ was contacted by uh, a group of black journalists uh, who work for global news and they began to share their concerns and their stories uh, telling us that they were frustrated they felt that they were not being listened to Mm -hmm. Um, and they wanted to go public and so as an organization we looked at well how can we support them and make sure that their voices are heard and that whatever concerns they're bringing forward that they're actually dealt with effectively Mm -hmm. and you know they as as we all discussed you know they were ready for, um, you know, something as public as an open letter, and and so we did that. You know, our role as an organization is to support them, you know, to amplify their voices, mm-hmm. and uh, and we saw that uh, open letter as as doing that. It was impossible at that point to ignore their the concerns that they um, that they had been raising mm-hmm. for for
2: for a while. And I noticed that in the open letter, there are examples brought up, incidences that happened. You don't have to get specific with me, but I'm just curious, since you're straddling both worlds here, the CABJ and global, are you also adding your own experiences or are you kind of stepping back and saying, this group came to us, I'm going to be in the CABJ role only when it comes to this letter? How much of the letter was personal for you?
0: So, in terms of um, the experiences, I can say no, they none of them were mine. Mm-hmm. It was important to amplify the voices of those who who came to the organization. So, yes, from in that sense, you know, I did step back and you know, completely uh, in the work of the CABJ, I do other than telling you that story of how I came to the organization. Sure. I I do my best to decenter yeah. um, myself so that any work that I do. Um, focuses on the people who need to be served. And that's mm-hmm. Black Journalists. They, they need an organization like us. Um, they always have since 1996 when the organization was founded. And so, um, so no, none of it was mine. But um, I, think, I think it was tough to, tough to just sit with that letter and, and the experiences of my colleagues. These mm-hmm. are my colleagues, you know, um, and, and what they had been going through um, and knowing that whatever they were going through, they were kind of just suffering with it by themselves. Yeah. You know, and and that was, I think, the 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 tough part for me, um, you know, when they finally f- had the courage to come forward uh, to us and, and go public with that. Um yeah it was it's it's also very humbling when people uh trust you to advocate for them mm-hmm. and so I am humbled that they they trust us as an organization to um to lead that push you know to speak for them when they feel like it might not be safe for them to do so
2: i mean, you've worked across several newsrooms, you've worked in several different cities. How relatable or common were the stories that you were hearing to your own experience being a black journalist in Canada?
0: Mm. Um, I'd say it's all in the microaggressions. (laughs) It's (laughs) all in the
2: microaggressions. And so, give me some examples of that.
0: You know, whenever it's, I think it's. I've done my best to kind of stay out of to stay out of that conversation, you know, because I just didn't want to talk about talk so much about myself, Um, but. When I think about my own experiences, it's you know people just kind of highlighting the fact that you're the only one, you know, and and I think to get through it as well, we make light of it. Like I'm, I would mm-hmm. make light of it, you know, me being the only one. But the truth is, I always, I always noticed, right? Um, I always noticed, and so, um, so yeah, I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to make it seem like I've had a terrible. Time in this industry. Um, but I also, you know, I keep those memories, I guess, close mm-hmm. enough to to remind myself that um, everything that they're experiencing is very raw and it's very real.
2: Mm-hmm. And I didn't mean to pry as like a gossip or anything, but I think this idea of microaggressions particularly for people of color is very important and it's important to express what that means just because we've talked about it on this podcast with with other people of color where you know when something has a racial undertone to it and if you tell the story to someone else who maybe does not have that experience they might look at you and go oh i don't know if that's racist but there is something internally where you recognize that it is. It's not someone just being a jerk to you or whatever else. There is something behind that, right? Mm -hmm. And I feel like people of color understand it when you tell each other, but sometimes telling other people who have not had that experience can be very challenging.
0: It's You know, the... I think the one thing, especially for journalists of color who travel outside of uh, Toronto to work, um, the one thing that we probably would all talk about having experience I I, got, I experienced it here in Vancouver mm-hmm. is you know the whole where are you from thing mm. um, and to me that is I don't know some I guess some people would see it as as overt I see it as more covert mm-hmm. um, in terms of 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 racism uh, and microaggressions mm-hmm. just because um, Sometimes they guess and it's terrible. The guesses, <laughs> the guesses are just terrible. Uh, and I'm always thinking to myself, like, like what, are, like what are they going to say or what are they going to think when they just realize I was born and raised in Toronto, like North York, <laughs> like right, like you know, I'm, I'm. You want to share
2: some bad guesses?
0: No. <laughs> uh, Cambodia. Oh, weird. Okay. Cambodia, huh. Nigeria, Zimbabwe. Uh, Cambodia is still the one that throws me, though. Yeah. Uh, My father's from uh, Trinidad. My mother's from Jamaica. Only one person has ever guessed Trinidad. Interesting. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Which, technically, I am not from
2: there, right? Ancestry,
0: but yeah. Yes, but me, myself, I am, you know, born and raised in Toronto. You know, though that's, you know, that's where home is, that's where my family is. You know, that's my city. But when you... Tell people like, no, I'm a born and raised Canadian. It's, oh, you know, it's a surprise. And it's like, you're being ridiculous. Yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> so the letter goes out. It's mm-hmm. published for everyone mm-hmm. to see. And you received a response.
0: Yeah, we did. We did receive a response. Um, and I, you know, and, and the response clearly saying that um, the first thing that this company was not going to do was to deny any of those stories. And that's very important because mm-hmm. for black journalists um, or black people in general, you know, when we share these stories, you know, people want to nitpick and question and, and, you know, call them and you know, su- suggest that maybe it wasn't. And then that's how the mm-hmm. gaslighting begins. But I appreciate that um, right off the top, there was this acknowledgement um, that no, we're not going to deny it. You know, we're not going to argue about your experiences. Mm-hmm. Um but there also has been a verbal and a written commitment from the company that they are going to work towards making uh, Chorus Global uh, a better place to be. Hmm. And, you know, the, the open letter comes after Joshua Grant and Ica Wong going public with their experiences uh, with the company. So, you know, so we know that there is um, a history in terms of the experiences that Black people have uh, within the company, mm-hmm. they have hired uh, a, a consultant, um, and that company is working, you know, with the company to to shed light on on the internal issues and and help them work forward uh, or work through that. and And they are, um, you know, being transparent. I think uh, mm-hmm. at this point about the process. But, uh, as Adrian Harewood said uh, you know, a couple of days or a couple of weeks ago on Twitter, the proof is in the eating. So we'll see, you know, we have to still wait and see what happens. What are the changes mm-hmm. that are made. There are commitments, and we welcome the commitments. But um, beyond that is, is the actual change and, and what happens. And I think we'll also be waiting to see, Um, you know, the proof is also in those retention numbers Yeah. Um, because when you have an environment like that, it's tough to convince black journalists to come and work for you. Mm -hmm. So, you know, can um, the, the work environment change to the point where this is a place where black journalists want to come and want to stay. I don't want to see black journalists leave this industry because of what they go through. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we need, these Black voices, we need them in producing roles, and senior roles, in anchoring and reporting. We need Black journalists there. Um, and But if they feel, if they continue to feel like they don't belong and like they're being squeezed out, um, and and if they continue to, to feel, I guess the, oh, just a lot of what they've been feeling up until now in terms of, of, of racist comments, whether overt or covert, mm-hmm. um, you know, they're not going to want to stay. But it's important for them to be in the room.
2: Was Chorus singled out or were there other letters or other campaigns with other media companies? Because it's safe to presume that this happens across the industry. Chorus is not special in terms of instances or issues there.
0: Um, so it's the employees that... At, um, at uh, Global or Chorus who came to us. um, Nobody else so far has in terms of wanting to write an open letter specifically. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's not to say that we have not been in conversations with black journalists who have had similar and worse experiences at other media outlets.
2: And you were telling me before we started recording that you're also going to different organizations as well. So what's the meeting like there?
0: Yeah, so part of the work, um, actually a big part of the work that we've been involved in now uh, is around the calls to action. Mm -hmm. And uh, the calls to action were released in January, January 28, 2020 actually, uh, uh, co-written by myself and Anita Lee of CJOC. And you know, when we wrote this, it it wasn't about calling out the industry or calling out anybody in particular. We did want to call call them in and say, hey, this is the conversation we need to have. Mm-hmm. It's time for change. And here are some tangible things that can be done to ensure that your your newsrooms are, are inclusive and, and moving forward, right? Uh, when we put out those calls to action, um, we did get a, a response on social media and, you know, from other journalists, um, from uh, independent or new media outlets, mm-hmm. but establishment media did not respond. <laughs> and then george floyd was murdered and then our inboxes were flooded hmm. with media outlets who wanted to talk about the calls to action who wanted to find out what they could do to bring change to their newsrooms it was it was a complete shift hmm. from from silence to full-on engagement yeah So the conversations uh, that we've been having with different media outlets are around uh, enacting the calls to action. Now, some outlets have uh, committed publicly to them. The Toronto Star, the Walrus uh, come to mind in terms of who's committed publicly to them. Um, And actually, there are others, but I just can't recall them right now. Um, But in terms of everyone that we've been meeting with, it is around what are the gaps um, in your newsroom, like base, as you read through the calls to action one to six, because number seven talks specifically about uh, universities and colleges. So as you mm-hmm. read through one to six, what are the gaps? What's keeping you from getting there? Uh, what's keeping you from releasing diversity data? What's keeping you from hmm. doing more meaningful engagement with your organizations? And not in an accusatory tone. It is you know let let's let's have a frank conversation about what is. Um the obstacle. Mm-hmm. And how can CJOC and CABJ work with you or advise you uh, to help you get to that point? Yeah, uh, where where change actually happens. And so the conversations have been, um, th- at least from my perspective, they have been engaging. They have been good. Mm-hmm. Um, they give me reason to hope that that change is going to come. But they don't give me reason to stop sure, yeah. <laughs> the work that we're doing just because somebody has now made a promise in a meeting or or they put out a tweet or they've you know posted something on their website. Yeah, we're gonna have to keep on talking. We're gonna have to keep on engaging. But I think the important thing um, is that you know our organization, CBJC, CJOC, aren't going anywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, we we want to see this industry change. It's got to change. I and think people are tired.
2: And so when we talk about that list of tangible actions that can be taken, what sort of things are we talking about?
0: So we're talking about, um, like right off the top, diversity data. This Mm -hmm. industry does not um, report on itself. Yeah. And, you know, in any kind of meaningful way, the CBC is the only one that does that. but. by law, it's required to. <laughs> and so nobody else does that. And that's something that needs to change. How can you say diversity matters and you don't track it?
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: then if you don't track it, how can you say... Uh, We're doing a good job <laughs> yeah, or a bad job or, a or bad job. Yeah, a bad job. Companies measure what matters. And so this is why we mm. are pushing so strongly for this. It's already been happening in the U.S. Mm. for a number of years. Uh, so we don't really see what the... You know what the holdup is here. So that's, you know, that's one big thing. Mm -hmm. Um, We're also talking about hiring more uh, reporters of color, um, both for television, print, digital. A key one for for the CABJ, for me personally, is seeing more black journalists in positions of leadership. Mm. Until we start to see them occupying uh, these decision-making positions, uh, I think it's still going to be a challenge in terms of a shift Mm -hmm. um, in the way people uh, think and approach stories and reporting on communities. That leadership needs to change um, in terms of who is making those decisions. So Mm. uh, we're also talking about um, audience engagement uh, from the perspective of um, media organizations actually listening to the audience uh, because audiences for a while have been talking about what's not working when they report on racialized communities yeah Um, we're talking about editorial boards and and how um excuse me how organizations can do more to to hear them out um actually more than hear them out to actually listen and and apply the changes that you know people are saying need to be made um we also talking about more inclusive um, or, or more meaningful reviews of diversity and inclusion policy, something that's more proactive mm-hmm. rather than reactive. So, you know, we're talking about reviewing codes of conduct and reviewing journalism standards mm. um, and viewing them through the lens of diversity and inclusion. You know, so looking at them through a new lens and, and maybe what changes need to be made. You know, some organizations talk about um That we've spoken with, um, you know, talk about their black journalists and journalists of color having raised concerns for a long time Mm -hmm. about how the policies um, they feel are too limiting, you know, stop them from talking about their communities, right? Um, you know, the accusations that, you know, you're going to it gets into bias and, you know, how can you talk about your reporting on your own community? And, you know, so all of those concerns. So we need to, you know, these organizations need to, from a proactive um, standpoint, just begin getting into those those reviews, but engaging with uh, consultants or journalists of color uh, on how those, um, how those policies need to change. Yeah.
2: When Angela Starrett was on the podcast, she talked a lot about how in the past when she would pitch an indigenous story, she would get that same type of pushback of, oh, it's too niche. Or in her words, she said some story is too depressing or wouldn't resonate. Or how can you as an indigenous reporter, uh, you know, or you as an indigenous reporter have a bias in reporting this issue. And it's just so Incredible in terms of how that can be said to someone, because no one would say that to a white reporter reporting on, you know, city council, which is mostly white or whatever else. Right.
0: Yeah. And I, I don't know. I've, I've been so fortunate to have not had that experience mm-hmm. in the industry. Typically, if I pitch a story about the black community, um, it's picked up, even if it's a VO. Mm-hmm. Uh, it gets done. What's um, a VO? A voiceover, okay. you know, uh, even if, if, if it's a community event, you yeah. know, that I'm saying, hey, this has happened. We should we should go there and we should shoot it. Mm-hmm. They have gone and, and shot it. And that's also been the case here at Global, even though they have definitely had their missteps here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that has happened. Um, but it's frustrating mm-hmm. when you are pitching these alternative perspectives um, actually they're not even what am i talking about these are not even yeah. alternative <laughs> perspectives when you are pitching um you know i guess what i mean by alternative perspectives is you know something that isn't in the traditional you know it's not this is not something that we would talk about every day, but it's something that we should talk about every day. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? So that's what I mean by, you know, it's, it's kind of out of the ordinary, but yeah. it's not out of the ordinary in that sense. Um, so I, I get it that you haven't heard that pitch before. I get it. I'm <laughs> pitching something that you haven't heard before. I totally understand that. But that doesn't mean that it is grounds for, you know, you to just dismiss it, mm-hmm. maybe explore or examine why this actually is a story. Yeah. Sometimes it also feels like, I think for journalists of color, you're just used, you know, we're, we're used for a diversity, a company can say, Oh, yeah, yeah, we have a diverse hire. But then you pitch stories from that perspective of multiculturalism, from a deeper understanding of your community. Um, and, and you know what it means to be a racialized Canadian. And then those ideas are dismissed. So you want me for the color, you know, the color of my skin, or you want me because of the community that I come from, but then you don't want my perspective. Mm-hmm. So that I think that just leads to even more frustration.
2: One of the things that you and I have actually discussed in the past is how in Canada, there will be diversity in the newsroom, perhaps sometimes nominal, as you just pointed out, <laughs> but there will be people of color as reporters. Maybe they'll even sit at anchor desks. But that space for op-ed or commentary is almost exclusively white.
0: And has been for some time.
2: Yeah. And, and I know your answer, but I'm asking it anyways. Do you think that's a fair assessment that people of color, particularly Indigenous and Black folks, have been kept out of that commentary role, whether it's television, radio, or newsprint?
0: Totally unfair. And a great example of systemic racism in yeah. journalism, right? Um, because those are, you know, this and this is why news has been or this industry has been viewed, you know, through a white lens. Because mm-hmm. it's people are reading newspapers and the commentary is all through, you know, that one viewpoint. Mm-hmm. Like That's the only one that matters in Canada. And so it's very frustrating um, that that research uh, that was done was by... Uh, to um, or a group from uh, Ryerson um, mm. that put out. I don't know if you if that's the one. If if that's I'm the research to that you're what, citing.
2: I'm alluding to something that Desmond Cole said. Okay. So which I'm sure that's probably what he's citing.
0: Yes. Yeah. So it was a study that was done by um, or not a study. It was um, research that came out of Ryerson University by Asma Malik and Sonia Fata. Um, and David Maastricht, I think his last name is. Forgive me for the mispronunciation, but Masri, um, I cannot remember. Anyways, a group <laughs> from Ryerson, yeah, uh, um, of researchers from Ryerson, put out this research uh, detailing um, the or looking over a 21 year span at three of the major newspapers and how these columnists self identified in terms of race and gender. Um, over the years and so just looking at how they self-identify like their own words right this mm-hmm. is their own words how they self-identify there were no black women over 21 years at any mm. of these three major papers um and there were no indigenous voices in mm. terms of like staff columnists mm. yeah exactly uh, and so this is the concern um how can you how can you say that you, you know reflect the voice of Canadians Mm -hmm. but you miss that perspective yeah it's complete actually not even miss it it's just completely absent and so so that is from our perspective especially when we talk about black women because black women have been ignored silenced for so many years. So from our perspective within the CABJ, that's something that we want to look at how we, you know, what can we do mm-hmm. um, to, to address that? I've got some ideas. We're still working on it, but, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, what can we do to, um, uh, to make sure that that, that changes? Yeah. Not that it's our responsibility for the record, the responsibility of making sure that there is representation is up to these media outlets. Mm-hmm. They're Absolutely. the ones who need to do the work. Yeah. Um, but for the CABJ, the question is, how do we
2: make sure that there's accountability so that change does happen? I just remember when I heard that and I heard that from Desmond Cole, as I said, that was like a big light bulb for me. And I was like, holy shit, he's right. And you go through the op-ed pages and you see the regular. And we're talking about the staff commentators and they have those on TV as well. And they have those on the Internet or web, whatever you want to call that digital. And you're like, oh, yeah, wow. Wow. They've really shut out a lot of people from those roles, and those are the positions that are getting people talking. Those are the positions that are their opinions, right? They're trying to convince you of something. They're giving you a perspective. And the more people I've told that, they've also just been like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. (laughs) a, they didn't realize. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, And B, you got to ask yourself, like, why? Why are you so afraid of my opinion? Yeah. You know, why don't you want to hear what we have to say? Um, I think that it's the why that leaves me, you know, and, and I don't have an answer for the why. Like, you're going to mm-hmm. have to ask, you know, these media companies, like, why?
1: Yeah.
0: You know, and I think um, if we're talking about how the audience um, can also hold the industry accountable, these are the kinds of questions that readers
1: mm-hmm.
0: need to ask yeah, of the, the, the stations you watch and the papers you read and the, the stations that you listen to. The This is how the audience also holds these companies accountable.
2: Mm-hmm. And it might be my demographic bias, but I certainly know that there are those commentators that I feel like everyone and everyone in my circle is just like, why is this person? And usually it's a guy. Why is this guy? still on TV. Why is this guy still in the op-ed pages of whatever newspaper? Right? And again, there's probably a demographic bias in that. But I think it's tuning a lot of people out because there isn't that diversity or isn't that even that idea of like freshness, something new. It's just the same old thing that we've seen over and over again.
0: Yeah, and and I think now more so than ever for media companies, diversify or die. Yeah. You know, like either you switch it up and you get those those fresh, diverse voices in there with perspectives that actually reflect, <laughs> you know, the population um, and 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 racialized Canadians. Mm-hmm. Um, unless you actually get those opinions in there, diversify or
2: die. You being in these dual roles with the CABJ and with Global. Throughout this year, and especially when you were putting that letter out, were you scared? Like, did you... I doubt that anyone would have fired you, but you must have thought about how this could affect your career in the future, right? Oh, that's a deep question.
0: Uh, (laughs) That's what we do. (laughs) Um, Yeah, yeah. I did have to overcome personal fear in in um, even putting out the calls to action. Hmm. Um, and I remember, you know, we knew that we were going to roll with it on the 28th. And I remember just being like up early, early that morning before, you know, we were before we knew that the, the article was going to be posted on, uh, on J source. And then, um, uh on our websites and uh yeah i was very much afraid and especially when the company did not respond i thought oh god this is it like (laughs) sure sure like this is it like i thought that was it
2: Um, sometimes a non-response is the worst right right? yeah Yeah. like the silence was just
0: i'm like well this is indicative of what is about to happen next yeah But for the months leading up to that, we've been working on that since June 2019. Mm -hmm. So for the months leading up to that, I spent that time counting the cost. Mm. And I decided that it was worth it. Mm -hmm. Part of the reason why I got involved in the CABJ is because, you know, that experience that I had, I just decided I didn't want anybody else to have to go through anything that I felt I didn't want anybody to have to go through that alone Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and to feel like, um, you know, like they were alone as well. Yeah, And and if this is what it's going to take, then somebody's got to be that voice. You Mm -hmm. know, somebody's got to step up. And I'm grateful for the team that we have on the CABJ where everybody feels passionately about doing this work to ensure that, Things are just better for everybody. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, there was there was fear. There always is fear, yeah. you know, when you um, step out and do something like this. But um, the only way to move ahead, the only way to make change, is to speak up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I think if it is going to mean. You know, it meant that I was uncomfortable for <laughs> yeah. for a couple of days, but it's led to a great change. Mm-hmm. And so it was worth it. And it's funny, you know, the moment I spoke up and now I see the change, um, or not I spoke up, but the organization, you know, the, sure. moment
2: we, the moment we put that out. But you were in this dual role, in right? This, yes. So <laughs> and it's your name that's identifiable, everyone else, they were employees, but- They're not identifiable in that sense.
0: Yes. Um, And so I think the reason, you know, the moment I spoke up, I realized that there was never anything to be afraid of. Mm. Um, You know, there was never, I never should have given people that power Mm -hmm. to believe that there was anything that they could do to me that would hurt me or destroy me or stop me from speaking. Um, I'm rooted very much in my faith, and so you know there there were some verses that I was like memorizing um, I over, love that. over that time. Um, and uh, and one of them I can't remember where it comes from, but um, but it, it, in the Bible it talks about don't be afraid of men in their faces. Don't be afraid of them. And so what am I? What am I really afraid of? What can they really do to me? especially if I know that what I'm saying is true.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And so Ida B. Wells, there's a quote from Ida B. Wells on our website um, that says, the only way to right wrongs is to shine the light of truth on it. If you are shining the light of truth on something, then you have nothing to be
2: afraid of. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. I know it's a tough thing to talk about, but I think it's important. And it's good to know that you came out the other side. And it sounds like I mean, you're speaking of it in such a strong manner. It's yeah. really cool.
0: Yeah. I feel like it's going to be in my book one day. So.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> there will be a memoir. <laughs> yeah, I love it.
2: I want to end on this note. I want to talk about performative allyship. We've talked about the racialized conversation being at the forefront of the public consciousness right now, certainly in the media this year. and. I think whether we see, you know, the black square on Instagram or companies coming out with their anti-racism messages for the public or even Justin Trudeau taking the knee. There's been this like overwhelming urge for everyone to show, hey, I'm on your side. I'm not racist. But when we dig deeper, we do see sometimes a lack of substance beyond these nice displays. And you even expressed that that was part of your worry. And I really don't want to shoot on any company or any specific person that does these performative acts, because it was brought to my attention that, you know, it could be an organization's or an individual's first entry into the conversation. So the last thing you want to do is scare them off by saying, well, what are you actually doing (laughs) if it is their first entry into this realm? and. When I had Dino Archie on the show, we talked about this a little bit, and he opened me up to an idea which I think you've also expressed here is, hey, if you are a company, an individual, a group of people, and you're putting up that black square or you're expressing this solidarity in words, you're now committing to the work and you're almost volunteering yourself to be accountable. So when we go into the future and hopefully we're done with this covid thing there's all these people and organizations that are now going to be accountable because we can point to them and say hey you said this and you said that you were going to you know be in solidarity. Is that maybe the best thing that's come out of this because in drawing in people into the conversation it's now kind of purposefully or inadvertently made so many more people accountable to the anti-racism work.
0: Mm. Um, and you're right. It is, you know, for, it's going to be a bit messy. I think as people figure out, it's like, it's like a baby deer learning how to walk, right? You stumble a couple of times. Um, I think, you know, what, what I would, and what I do for myself, even, um, and so what? I, what I would leave your listeners with is to examine your motives.
1: Mm.
0: Why are you doing that? Why are you putting up that black square? Why are you saying that you're going to do that? Are you saying you're going to do that because you know it'll it, it's good for business? Um, are you saying that you're going to do that because everybody else is doing it and you're feeling the pressure, or or are you saying that because? There has been an inward shift that is prompting an outward response. Mm-hmm. And so I think um, we we all, but especially you know organizations, have to examine their motives. Mm-hmm. Once you get to the bottom of why you're doing it and stay rooted in that. Mm-hmm. stay rooted in that why um, because unless you're driven by your why, right? Simon Sinek, start with why. And so unless you're driven by your why, then you'll never know your what and you'll never know your how. Yeah. And so um, if organizations mean what they say um, and do what they what they mean, you know, and, and do it meaningfully and do what they say, um, then then, as Adrian says, the proof will be in the eating. Mm hmm. If they mean it, it will show. If they don't mean it, it will show. Mm-hmm. Right? It Everything that we do bears fruit. And so I think um, as we move over these next couple of months, um, allies, true allies, will begin to bear fruit. And those who only did it um, for the moment, that'll bear fruit
2: too. Mm-hmm. I think that's well said, very well spoken. I liked also what you said at the start is that it's going to be messy. And I think that wasn't advertised well enough. (laughs) And it's going to be messy for everyone. It is. Right. These are uncomfortable topics, but similar to what you just told me about having that courage to speak out and speak out and amplify these voices. It is scary, but you will see it through to that other side if the intent is there. Yes. Right. And
0: and like you said, you know, these are uncomfortable topics. Yeah. So have them uncomfortable, you know, rest in that a bit. Sit with it. Sit with that discomfort, especially in North America. We don't like to be uncomfortable. Mm -mm. You know, we we do what we can to get from, you know, discomfort to comfort as quickly as possible. Yeah. But change comes in the discomfort Mm -hmm. empathy is built in the discomfort
1: Mm -hmm.
0: understanding knowledge wisdom Mm -hmm. right wisdom is knowledge applied how do you get knowledge unless you go through trials something that's uncomfortable yeah and so um i think we have to companies have to newsroom leaders have to sit with the discomfort of this conversation for a while and let it do its work. Mm -hmm. It will, if you mean it, if we all mean it, it will transform, it'll transform you.
2: Yeah. Do you almost think there has to be like a retraction a little bit from the people that are also doing the calling out? Because if someone is trying to do the good work and they're doing the self-assessment so they're, you know, in like the media sector or wherever else, if they've never gathered data before and now they're gathering it. You know, there are going to be some ugly, embarrassing realizations. And at the same time, we do have a culture, I'm not saying cancel culture, but I'm saying we do have a culture where we really like to hammer at people sometimes. And sometimes it's undeserving if they're just trying to navigate their way. Um mm these are good questions uh, <laughs> <laughs>
0: um so I understand why why people are calling out you know if, oh if, hundred yeah. percent if you don't if sometimes if you don't call it out like you see it when you see it then nothing will change yeah right then you know then nobody's gonna do anything and and people will kind of just try and skirt by mm-hmm. um but I do hear what you're saying in that um if it's always heavy handed, yeah. um, then people will be scared yeah. to to step out and to try. Um, I think with with everything there's balance and in time, uh that balance will be found. I think tension is still quite high right now. People are still feeling um yeah, I just think there's still a lot of tension right now. But I do think eventually we will find that balance, Mm -hmm. um, in, in terms of that conversation. Um, it's a big part of the reason why even within our calls to action, we spent a lot of time working on tone Mm -hmm. because we didn't want, um, people to feel like they were being called out. Um, not because we didn't want to make them feel uncomfortable. Um, but because it's important to call people in and say, look, y'all are screwing up but we (laughs) but we want to have this conversation yeah so let's have it let's make change um our organizations are here you know like we're we're not just here to call you out and then just leave you we are here to engage yeah and so i think as long as um as long as we're still at the table having these conversations messy conversations uncomfortable conversations um we'll find we'll find our way but we have to be committed to finding our way Mm -hmm. and I I do think um, I do try and show people grace in this process um, because I want people to show me grace and and if I want grace I have to I have to give it to so now showing people grace doesn't mean that I don't hold you accountable Mm -hmm. but it it just means that um, I'm not going to ditch you as soon as you make a mistake
2: right yeah i think that's a good way to live i mean i screw up all the time so i would hope people show me grace and i'm trying to do the same thing as well you know not and this is also just like a personal philosophy as well i mean there's a difference between seeing someone's repeated behaviors or their ill intent versus someone just trying to make their way or, or or trying to do what's best and and screwing up because we yeah, all do that.
0: You can tell, and and I mean the malicious, you know. There's a different way to deal with the yeah. you know, the <laughs> malicious crowd, but um, you know the the honest tumblers, Yeah. You know, I think of myself. You know, and and um, sometimes I just needed some help, some advice, mm-hmm. and if I can offer you that, then I will. You know, I'm not I'm I'm not here to. I don't want um, I don't want anybody that we work with to feel like, you know, we're (laughs) we're just here to, you know, to condemn you. Yeah, we're here to we're here to hold you accountable, but we're we're still here. Sure. We're still here. Nadia,
2: this was a real pleasure. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you.
0: I was so nervous about this conversation. No. Oh my god!
2: Why? <laughs> Am I that intimidating?
0: Uh. Well, you know, I. So I'm used to being the one asking questions. Oh yeah.
2: And this it's different on the other side. Oh
0: my gosh. Like they don't talk about this in leadership training. <laughs> um, I'm just finishing up my master's, the master's of leadership in nonprofit organizations. There was zero media training, which is nothing to do with my university. But I feel like um, you know everybody expects because you are in media, this will be this will be easy for you. And it's like nah, It's not easy.
2: No. <laughs> I find it way easier to be the one guiding the interview. I mean, I've only done little hits on the radio and stuff, but even then, it's like you're on a hot seat. Yes. Oh, it's on me now. Yeah. And it's like,
0: what did I say? Did that come out? Did I just say that? Did yeah. that make sense?
2: That didn't make sense. Take that back.
0: <laughs> Fix that. Can you edit that out? Please, like edit that out. So I have avoided, I don't, have I done any live radio? I don't think I've done any live radio. Oh really? Okay. Or, or TV. Thank God. Yeah. But um, yeah, it is, it is low key nerve wracking. <laughs> low key. I did appreciate though that this was more of a conversation. No, absolutely. Uh, and I think it's an else. important
2: conversation. Yeah. And I do want to thank you for, being authentic and for sharing your personal experience for sharing some of your family's experience and for sharing some of the voices that you represent at the CABJ as well. So that means a lot to me. I appreciate your time. How do people find you, follow you? Please direct the people where to go, wherever you want them to go.
0: So most importantly for black journalists or for the work that we're doing with the CABJ, you can find us online at www.cabj.news. Uh, and once you're there, you can also find uh, links to our Twitter account um, as well as, yeah, everything else that we're up to on there. It's, it's There's a lot on the website to take it in. Um, for me, you can find me at Nadia underscore Stewart. Uh, on Twitter you can find me on Instagram at Nadia R. Stewart and I think those are the only two places where I live you won't find me a lot on Twitter these days though because <laughs> child it is just, <laughs> oh, it is just it is too much on Twitter and you know we're doing the work of the CABJ plus um, my job like my I still am full time it feels like I have two full time jobs uh, and wrapping up school like my day starts super early and super late so I have timers on my on all of my apps oh my God. to ensure that I do not, uh, you know, spend too much time on social I media. I do that, and also for my mental health. <laughs> I, I found like throughout COVID, it was a big help. So twenty minutes per app per day, and uh, I know, right? Like it's we are militant. <sighs> How and are you going to get in those Twitter flame wars right? in only
2: twenty minutes? <laughs> I need to do that. I need to stay out of these dumb Twitter arguments I keep t- getting into.
0: It, it will change your <laughs> life. Now, on iPhone, you can, like, you do have the option, like, once it locks you out, it says, well, you can ignore. So unless I'm covering a story where I need to keep tweeting, yeah, which is very rare these days, uh, then I just ignore. And I Smart. let the rest of the day go, and I shut my, I shut my phone down, um, or my phone shuts itself down. At eleven o'clock and doesn't fire up again until seven in the morning, so I I've found doing that helps. So if you don't find me on Twitter, if you send me a message and I don't respond, please, Grace, just
2: just you're in the queue. You're in the queue.
0: (laughs) I see it, but I'm just I'm just so swamped these days. But uh, but thank you so much. Thank you for this opportunity. I trust that you will edit out all the terrible stumbles. Oh, we don't want to edit anything. Ums. Oh, my we gosh.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think there's anything to edit out. And <laughs> all things considered, I know you have a busy schedule, so I'm really appreciative of your time. Thank you so much. Of course. You're welcome. People, she is a video journalist for Global, the executive director for the Canadian Association of Black Journalists. She's the wonderful Nadia Stewart. And I am Moamir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace.